0: Hey there, I'm Scott Mitchell, the editor of Schwartz Media's daily news show, 7am. This is The Weekend Read. Every fortnight on the show, we feature the best long-form journalism in Australia, read to you by the people who wrote it. Today on the show, journalist Esther Linder, with her piece from The Monthly. As the cost of living spirals, Esther Linda writes about one thing we don't talk enough about in Australia, hunger. While Australians often can't skip a rent payment, they can skip a meal, and as the cost of living soars, more and more Australians are going hungry. Through the lens of hunger, she looks at economic inequality and the failure of Australia to perceive the growing gap in wealth. Esther will read her story, The Hunger Games, after a short conversation. Esther, we know that cost of living is really the challenge of Australian life right now. So many people are struggling. When you began to look at this topic of food security, how did you want to cover it? And what did you want to bring into focus with the way you approached the story?
1: I think I wanted to bring into focus the fact that It is so pervasive across Australian society. It's not just people that we would stereotypically think of being as food insecure. It's, you know, people with mortgages. It's people with, you know, multiple jobs. And it's also across the entirety of our geographic landscape. So it's in, you know, communities that I interviewed just outside of Melbourne. It's in inner-city Melbourne. It's, you know, in remote communities in the NT. It's kind of everywhere. And... It's a problem that we're not really talking about in a way that's personal, that really talking about how people are affected on a daily basis by not being able to eat.
0: And Esther, one volunteer you spoke to for this story, he describes how his food service um, is seeing more and more people from double-income households. As you mentioned, it's not people that everyone would suspect. What did you think when you heard him say that, the fact that more and more people like that need this kind of support?
1: I think it comes back to the image that we have of someone who is food insecure or someone that who is hungry. I think the stereotype is that it's someone on welfare, it's someone who might not have a job, it might be someone who's in between jobs. And, you know, what he was talking about was that it was really cutting across many levels of society. It's from people who are on welfare, absolutely, but it's also people who would consider themselves middle class, that own a home, you know, they might um, live in a sort of traditionally wealthier part of town, are university educated, but they are still struggling to make ends meet. And I think that... In the cost of living crisis and especially with inflation and interest rates going up so dramatically as they have over the last year, it has really come to this point where people are sacrificing food because that is something that they can sacrifice or have to. You know, you can't not repay your mortgage, but in the same vein... When you're sacrificing food, that has so many flow-on effects on your health, on your mental health, on your overall well-being. So yeah, it was definitely a thing of it's not what you expect, and it is so much more pervasive than we think.
0: Well, Esther, thank you so much, and I can't wait to hear you read your piece. Thank you. Coming up after the break, Esther Linda will read The Hunger Games.
1: The Hunger Games. At the doorway to Alinda Hall, in a mountainside community in the Yarra Ranges, an hour east of Melbourne, a tall woman is greeted by name as she enters. She speaks for a few minutes to the volunteers in face masks and yellow fluoro vests before being handed a box of food. Bread, green beans, pre-packaged salad mix, a tomato, lemons, oranges, a tin of instant coffee. It's early February. A laugh rings out into the wooden beams of the hall, News is exchanged and pleasantries made before the woman departs. Around me, five people work efficiently as they put items into boxes, each labelled with a name, ready to be picked up by those in need. On top of one of the boxes at the back of the hall sits a bouquet of white flowers from Woolworths with an $8 price sticker. Two metal racks next to the doorway hold plastic bread crates. As people are leaving with their boxes, they often stop here and pick from the selection of Helga's sliced breads or bakery loaves of white sourdough, whole grain and seeded. Up on the mountain, it's a good three to five degrees cooler than in the city. Though still summer, the heat has faded and it feels more like autumn. Earlier that morning, Rosalind McKay and others had driven to the local Aldi in Monbok to collect food that would have otherwise been thrown out. The group has an agreement with the manager of the store, as well as the Woolworths, the health food store, and some nearby restaurants, to collect food that can be donated rather than sent to landfill. The goods are then brought to the community hall every Monday and Wednesday and sorted into boxes for those who have signed up. The boxes are free, and the people invest are volunteering their time. The group pays for the use of the hall with a $10,000 grant from Bendigo Bank and it sometimes receives fuel vouchers from Yarra Rangers Council to cover the cost of collection and delivery. I am told that volunteers often pass on the vouchers to someone who might need them more. It's a small town. The group supports roughly 250 people over two days of food drives, as well as school breakfast programs, with regular fundraising days and the kindness of strangers all core to the continuation of the service. Andrew Philip Gautier... A warm and energetic man in his 50s, dressed head to toe in black, including a black face mask, is busy organising boxes when I arrive. He started the Philanthropic Collective, the parent organisation of this free food group, and says the people it serves are as varied as the towns I drove through on my way here. It's a great divide of middle-income people who are now sort of the working poor, and then you've got the people that are living on the edges, he tells me. So you've got this sort of group that are welfare dependent that will always really be on Struggle Street. But surprisingly to a lot of people, there's another tier, which is double income, highly educated, falling through the cracks because they can't meet their mortgage repayments, Philip Gautier says. So it's just that their wages have not kept up with what they've got to pay out. And so for those people, they're a couple of paychecks away from disaster. His friendly and consistently upbeat tone is regularly accentuated with some of the harsh stories he and his fellow volunteers hear on a daily basis. That's the grim reality, you know. Life as you know it with your children is humming along, and then all of a sudden it's completely turned on its head, he tells me. My original contact is McKay, a welcoming figure with blonde hair and the high-vis volunteer vest. She is accompanied by her young daughter, who makes origami cranes and helps sort goods into boxes as we chat. At one point, the girl asks brightly if the portion she has is enough for one family. A couple more handfuls, she is told. The collective is part of the Yarra Rangers Emergency Relief Network, which connects food relief organisations in the region to share resources, goods and ideas. As Philip Gautier runs me through how this one group of volunteers works, a growing web forms in my mind, a symbiotic ecosystem of organisations working together to stave off catastrophe for their communities. McKay and Philip Gautier don't ask for people to prove they are in need. They simply accept that someone showing up means they are. With the cost of living, it's sort of making the middle class the new poor, McKay says. If it was just petrol, that wouldn't be a problem, but everything has gone up. The pair have invited their state and federal members to come and see their work and what the community is dealing with. They don't know that this is occurring, and how would you? So that's why we insist that they come here, Philip Gautier says. Because then, when we're all sitting at the table talking about it, you can actually contribute to the conversation. They just sort of go, oh, we had no idea. Well, you should have an idea, he says. It reminded me of a moment during the RoboDebt Royal Commission when Alan Tudge, the former Human Services Minister, remarked that most people have regular income streams. The comment was by way of a justification for the use of income averaging, a system that is believed to have led to the suicides of seven people, a world of pain for thousands more incorrectly told they owed Centlink significant sums of money and a terrifying glimpse into the machinations of a welfare system not designed to help those in need. I mean, most people, Commissioner, do earn the same amount each fortnight, Tudge said. Well, in the public service they do. I'm not sure when you're on a benefit that that's really true, Commissioner Catherine Holmes replied. Tudge's ignorance on the basics of unstable work and income that many people deal with every day, including myself, as a writer for hire, is is indicative of what leads to bad policy when a person in power has never experienced the sort of situation for which they are making legislation. For Tudge, a Haley Berry and Harvard graduate who is comfortable on an income upwards of $211,250 per year, the base salary for federal representatives, excluding ministerial bonuses, accommodation allowances, superannuation, expenses such as meals, declared gifts, and so forth, The idea that he might find himself involuntarily without a salary and possibly be forced to rely on the kindness of strangers in his community is completely foreign. I say goodbye to the people in Olinda Hall and get into my car to head back to the city. My stomach begins to rumble. Hunger is inevitable for us all. Food is one of our most basic needs, alongside water, the most critical. Australia produces enough food for around 75 million people per year, almost three times our population, according to the Australian Food and Grocery Council, and exports most of it overseas in the form of grains and cattle. Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria are each food bowls bursting with grains, fruits, vegetables and livestock. But underneath the shiny corporate language about the state of the agricultural industry, while climate change rages unabated, there lies a creeping level of hunger within our society. Produced by Australia's largest hunger relief charity, The Food Bank Hunger Report 2022 estimates that around 21% of Australian families are deeply food insecure. That is, in the last 12 months, they went without food for at least a day, having been unable to afford it. The COVID pandemic meant many lost formerly stable incomes and were either reliant on JobKeeper, for those who were able to keep their job titles, JobSeeker, for those who weren't, or the screaming void that was Australia figuring out how to cope in an age of chaos. Lockdowns, border closures, supply chain disruptions, a war on the other side of the world that disrupted fuel supplies and a host of other random but connected butterfly events. You can see the patterns. Households with children appear to be more susceptible, as do those without stable work, renters and those under 24. Being food insecure is becoming ever more common and ever-present for roughly a fifth of households nationwide. Every food relief organisation I spoke to while researching this essay had the same thing to say more and more people are hungry. Demand for food relief is often outstripping what organisations can supply. OzHarvest reported the delivery of 450,000 meals per week in January and that was not enough to meet demand. Second Bite, Australia's largest free food rescue organisation, reported three quarters of the agencies it supports faced increased demand for assistance from both established clients and a new range of those needing support. A Second Byte spokesperson tells me there is a growing assertion within the food relief sector that today anyone might find themselves in need of food relief, given any set of adverse circumstances. With interest rates rising, a national housing crisis and the stagnation of wages, alongside recurring natural disasters that tend to wipe out capacity and raise prices, food becomes the thing that people are sacrificing in order to meet other financial needs. I think what the broader public doesn't understand and what the government would certainly like to stick its head in the sand about is the fact that the cost of food going up often outstrips inflation more broadly, says Kristen O'Connell, spokesperson for the Anti-Poverty Centre, an advocacy group established in 2021 who herself lives below the poverty line. A lot of our most essential expenses, things like electricity, go up at a faster rate than inflation and that means we are being hit the hardest out of anyone in the community. The Consumer Price Index is a measure of the overall change in prices for consumer goods, providing a snapshot of inflation's effect on households. In other words, it's a measure of how much more expensive things are compared to a quarter or a year ago. In the 12 months to December 2022, the CPI went up 7.8%. Food and non-alcoholic beverages, however, increased by a rate of 9.2%. Simply, food is more expensive now. Specifically, the average cost for fruit and vegetables is 8.5% higher than it was at the end of 2021. These figures are bland in their simple terms, but for O'Connell and the other 3.3 million people estimated to be living on or below the poverty line in Australia, according to a recent joint study by the Australian Council of Social Service and UNSW Sydney, it means the difference between eating one meal a day or nothing. Most of us will tend to cut food before we cut just about anything else out of those bare essentials, O'Connell says, because falling behind on rent means you can become homeless. Falling behind on electricity means you can't have an awful lot of basics, even things like having a fridge or having a phone to stay connected. So what happens is you just train yourself over time to get used to eating very infrequently or very small amounts, or you find foods that make you feel full even without there being a lot of nutrition. It's a grim reality that the roughly two million people on JobSeeker, the Disability Support Pension and others that fall through the gaps know too well. The cost of living crisis ultimately becomes or exacerbates a food security crisis when those are the choices you're faced with, O'Connell says in a raw voice. A Disability Support Pension recipient, she has direct experience of the consequences of frugal welfare policy. Groceries, good and nutritious, the type of foods that won't give you health issues now or later on in life, have gone beyond being a basic commodity to become a luxury one. Go to any farmer's market today and the prices are far out of reach for anyone living in poverty or in the lower tax brackets. If you can afford a diet rich in fruits, vegetables, legumes, protein, carbohydrates and healthy fats, as the Australian Dietary Guidelines recommend, you are likely to live longer, consume fewer pesticides and microplastics and have more free time. According to Health Direct, the national government-funded health advice agency, an average adult needs to consume around 8,700 kilojoules of energy per day to maintain a healthy weight. But what happens when you can't? Melissa Fisher is an artist and former carer living in Adelaide. As we chat over the phone, she is friendly, stoic and open about how her disability has interacted with the welfare and food systems in a crisis of unsettlingly quiet proportions. She suffers from hydrodentitis suppurativa, a skin condition that causes irregular and debilitating pain and abscesses all over her body during flare-ups, making it untenable for her to hold down a regular job. She is unable to access the disability support pension because she cannot afford to pay for a diagnosis from a specialist dermatologist, as the application requires. Instead, she lives with the meagre income that JobSeeker provides. Fruit and veg doesn't last very long once you buy it, so you have to replace it. So those options are kind of out because the expense of buying it and having to replace it, it just doesn't make it worthwhile, she tells me. In November 2021, Fisher was diagnosed with malnutrition and scurvy after months of eating food that didn't include enough vitamin C and other core minerals. Her diet consists largely of bread, pasta, and other filling but nutrient-poor foods. So basically, like, once you pay your bills, like rent, etc., there's just nothing left for food, she says. Of course, you tend to buy the food that's not great, but will fill you up. A lot of pasta, a lot of bread, which doesn't actually have the nutrition that your body needs. Fisher has been hospitalised three times in the past year because of her health. She needs regular iron infusions and buys vitamins in place of nutritious foods. Her income is the main reason she is malnourished. While she supplements her Job Seeker payment with sales from her art practice, she isn't able to access food relief services because she doesn't have a car. As for many people living in poverty, the coronavirus supplements that lifted welfare payments by $275 a week brought Fisher some relief. Despite the persistent waves of COVID and ongoing lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria, these supplements were ended in March 2021. The grim circularity of her repeatedly needing to access the public health system because of the lack of welfare support to live a better life is not lost on me. One afternoon in late February, as I am working on this essay, I spend an afternoon at a friend's rental house in inner Melbourne's Richmond. Victoria Street is brimming with excellent fur restaurants, Vietnamese grocers and a three-level shopping complex. I've left it too late to shop at a well-stocked and decently-priced Asian grocery store nearby and instead head up two escalators to the Walworths. The supermarket's green logo, so simple, is ever-present. Everything is clean, sanitised and in Ordnung. I can't be sure if the aisles are the same in every branch you walk into, but it would make sense. Each a copy of the next. As I walk through the supermarket trying to find tortilla wraps, conscious of the fact that I haven't eaten since that morning, prices swim in and out of my head. Everything in the pesto selection is more than five dollars. Too expensive. Pasta. You have the option of home bread, middling or fancy. I've been eating beans and rice recently, an easy meal with simple ingredients. I grab two green apples, the tortillas and a couple of other things and I, the bottom shelf of the bread aisle. Everything at the cheaper end is sold out and there are only two loaves of sliced white bread remaining. Ingredients. Wheat flour, water, yeast, vinegar... Iodized salt, canola oil, soya flour, vitamins, thiamine, folate. Not exactly nutritious. Back at the front of the store, blueberries, powerhouse sources of vitamin C, are $4.70 for a 125 gram box. Avocados full of healthy fats and vitamins are $2.50 each. Apples, Granny Smith, are $3.90 a kilogram. If you only had $10 or less for a day's worth of food, what would you do As Andrew Lawrence, a member of the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, told the Senate Inquiry into the extent and nature of poverty in Australia this February, eating healthy costs a lot of money. If you live anywhere in an urban sprawl, chances are there are still smaller places to shop for vegetables away from the meat grinder of corporate supermarkets. But they are becoming few and far between, and the story is completely different in rural and remote Australia. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities living on country know this better than anyone. For First Nations people who live in the hundreds of remote communities dotted across Australia, capitalism and a history of colonisation have combined such that remote Aboriginal citizens are some of the most food-insecure people in the country. A tin of coffee for $50, fresh food available once a week in the local store, if that, milk twice the price it would be in a metropolitan city. This is all common for people living in places such as Nooka, Nullanboy or Wadia. A parliamentary inquiry prompted by the former Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, found that food and grocery prices are consistently higher on average in remote areas than in the rest of the country, and an often unstable supply chain meant that transportation of fresh fruit and vegetables could not always be guaranteed. A 2019 study by the Northern Territory Government found that the cost of a, quote, healthy food basket to feed a family of six for two weeks was 56% higher in remote communities than in metropolitan centres. These communities include some of Australia's lowest socioeconomic groups, and yet they are paying up to one and a half times the average amount for food. The committee's report is the third time the topic has been examined, also in 2009 and 2014, and the report's authors comment that it is, quote, "...notable that all of the same issues were raised earlier without noticeable action or change since." I leave the supermarket, thinking about an article I had seen the day before about how Woolworths was introducing new levels of surveillance for their self-checkouts. The new overhead AI camera system watches for items not scanned, in many ways assuming everyone is a would-be thief, a measure labelled punitive and unnecessary by critics. The security guard chats nonchalantly to another employee as I leave the self-serve bay. Across the grim, fluorescent-lit landing of the shopping centre's top floor is a Services Australia branch. I hadn't noticed it when I came in. One solution to solving persistent food insecurity has been canvassed many times by those in need and flat-out rejected by both major parties just as often. Raising welfare payments. What is referred to as the poverty line in Australia can mean several things, but based on the latest data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the Australian Council of Social Service defines it as an income of $489 or less per week for a single person, and $1,027 for a couple with two children. The JobSeeker payment is currently hovering around $346 a week for a single person with no dependents. Raising JobSeeker and other welfare payments to a livable level would ultimately cost some $200 billion, according to Guardian Australia's interactive budgetary tool. The scheduled Stage 3 tax cuts, the higher end of which solely benefit those who earn more than $120,000 a year, are instead projected to cost the Albanese government, at the time of writing, $254 billion over a decade. The cuts were devised by the former coalition government, whose robodebt scheme demonised those on welfare as thieves in order to minimise costs. It is simple to raise social security payments. All that is required is a political will to do so, the Senate inquiry into poverty was told in February by Kavitha Sivasamy, a lawyer representing Economic Justice Australia and Canberra Community Law. The Inquiry, chaired by Green Senator Janet Rice, has received 144 submissions from a range of welfare advocates, including the food relief sector. Every decision the government is making shows a complete and utter lack of understanding of our lives or a total lack of care, Kristen O'Connell says. She and her colleagues at the Anti-Poverty Centre were also present at the Inquiry and urgently recommend raising payments to the Henderson poverty line a relative measurement determined by a similar inquiry in 1973 that describes a level above the current ACOS yardstick and which includes measures around housing and other costs within society to contextualise what it might cost to live simply, but well. During 2020, welfare payments only just reached the Henderson-Pobby line with the additional COVID-19 supplements. Now, with those supplements ended, payments are nowhere near it. It is a policy choice. It's clear something can be done, the inquiry was told by Greg Jericho, policy director at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. The guts of the matter is that successive governments at all levels have chosen the path of least resistance, leaving provision of services to the private and community sectors. Instead of choosing to raise welfare payments, the federal government gives money to the food relief sector. With each middleman comes more administrative costs and less direct impact, what Rosalind McKay from Alinda described as a quote, inverse triangle, where the person actually needing help gets the least amount at the end. The fat has been skimmed away, sometimes deliberately, most often inadvertently. The situation becomes one in which good food is only accessible to those who can afford it. While fuel and freight prices soar and climate change ravages food production, the impact of increasingly expensive food will only deepen as people become more desperate. And while the outsourcing of welfare and social services to religious organisations, charities and communities can create individualised solutions to large-scale problems such as food insecurity, it also creates a system with little to no accountability for how effectively the money has been spent. Some call this profiting off poverty. O'Connell describes the food relief sector as, quote, part of the poverty machine in the way that it can fail to address the core problem. Food banks are giving governments ways to make it seem like they're doing things to help poor people, she says, when in reality it's just sort of perpetuating the non-profit industrial complex. An interview I did months ago with a representative of one of the major food relief agents came to mind, in which the employee described themselves as, quote, an entrepreneur, and listed ways in which they wanted to create businesses from the demand seen in their community. I found it deeply troubling that someone who had such intimate knowledge of how people were struggling wanted to monetize need in such a way. There are solutions. There are ways to improve food security that give people agency and respect without demeaning them to prove their need. But it will take governments of all levels to take food insecurity seriously. The Free Food Group in Alinda are currently trying to secure funding to continue their work once the grant from Bendigo Bank runs out. If they don't manage to, many of the people that they help will go without. When my conversation with O'Connell is at an end, I ask her if there is anything else she wants to add. Her words ring in my ears for weeks afterwards. There is absolutely no need for anyone on this continent to be hungry.
0: To hear more Weekend Reads, you can subscribe to The Weekend Read in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.